We're going to continue worshiping our great God. Here, take out your Bibles, and on, there's an outline on the back of your bulletin as well. And for the introduction here this morning, I'm, I'm not a poet, but I thought I would try and attempt at a poem, and so uh, I would appreciate your humoring me to share this with you. Um, and Micah and Hannah would roll their eyes at this, so... Um, in that most uh, honor and respect, of course. <laughs> so, uh, here we go. Um, here's the poem. Some people like corn, other people like peas. Some people like chicken, while others like beef. Some people like these songs, other people like those. Some people like active music, while others don't want to move their toes. Some people like piano, and other people like guitar. We can all be pretty petty. Sadly, that's often how we are. If we're honest with ourselves, we are pretty infatuated with ourselves and what we like. Okay. Can you say idolatry? Uh, right? if, if we are not careful, our likes or our desires can become idols. And one theologian has stated this, quote, The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is, in itself a monstrous sin, and substitutes for the true God, one made after its own likeness. End quote. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, writing underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, addresses this concept of worshiping a God of our own making, which in reality is worshiping God on our own terms. Romans chapter 1 is where we'll start out this morning. Verse 18. Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise." They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Well, the same theologian I quoted just a moment ago also wrote this, quote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, end quote. You see, our minds and thought processes inform and direct our worship, our theology, affects our doxology. Let me restate that. How and what we think about God will have a direct impact on how and what we worship. Now, we live in a society that celebrates humanism, which one author has defined as, quote, a value system rooted in the belief that man is his own measure, that man is autonomous, totally independent, end quote. We live in a culture that celebrates the idolatry of the individual, Ironically, in God's word, we are called to be part of something much bigger, much larger than ourselves, right? We're called what? The body. The individual is not the champion. The champion is Jesus Christ, and the church is the bride of Christ. Each of us individually is not a bride of Christ. Collectively, the church is the bride of Christ. Now, think through this. If, individual, if individuality is a key concept in Scripture, right, then we should be very keenly aware of our own preferences, right? 
and treat those as vastly important. But if the community, if the body is what is treated as vastly important in Scripture, then we need to elevate the preferences of others above ourselves. The needs of others, we are told in Philippians chapter 2, we're to look out for those needs, not our own. Okay, so we see that presented for us in Philippians 2. Turn over to uh, just a couple chapters over, Romans 12. We're going to see the Apostle Paul offering another comment on this. Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So here's the thought process. In the corporate worship gathering, do we worship the feeling of worshiping? You know, that, that, that sense of feeling like you have worshiped. The telltale indicator is whether or not you got that funny feeling in your stomach, right? whether or not the hairs on the back of your neck start standing at attention, right? whether or not you get the goosebumps running down your arms. And if you get all three of those indicators, oh, snap, look out. Right? Worship has just occurred. Right? Really? Okay, no offense here. I get that stuff listening to a finely crafted country music song that tells an emotional story. <laughs> right? I mean, how, how manipulated are we and how manipulating are we? Right? Each one of us, each member of the human race has preferences. And when it comes to music, it seems the human race has strong preferences. And generally speaking, those preferences are connected to our feelings and our emotions. Now Malachi, which by the way has absolutely nothing to do with music, is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. All right, Malachi is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Flip backwards just a couple books, get to Matthew there at the beginning of the New Testament, and go back one book. Perfect, right? Going to spend the majority of our time there. Please join me what we, in the last book of what we know as the Old Testament. Malachi is not just some random guy sitting out there in biblical space, right? Malachi served as a prophet during the time of Nehemiah. In addition, the name Malachi means my messenger or messenger of Yahweh. The knowledge that Malachi and Nehemiah were contemporaries is significant for us. If you remember well, right, Nehemiah led a group of captives back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the great city. Then after rebuilding the walls, Nehemiah returned to Persia. And it's likely during this time of Nehemiah's absence that the book of Malachi was written. And this would have been a glorious time, right? The walls of the great city of Jerusalem would have just been rebuilt. The Israelites were able to worship Yahweh again in the holy city, and there would have been great grounds for optimism. Yet all is not well. All is not well. There's something growing beneath the surface where no one is willing to look. So let's look. Let's look at Malachi chapter 1. Start at verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. And if I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. 
Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand? says the Lord. But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Lord God, as we are studying your word here this morning, indeed, open our eyes to see. May our hearts, may our brains, May our emotions, may our intellect be actively engaged as we think through the reality of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, in these verses, we already see something that is pertinent when reading the book of Malachi. Notice the voice of the Lord. All right, notice the voice of the Lord. And quite honestly, the book isn't that big. Right? There are only 55 verses in the whole book, and I know the verses weren't there when it was first written, but in our, according to our standard, 55 verses, that's not that much. There are only 55 verses in the book. And one commentator has written this, quote, of the 55 verses in Malachi, 47 are spoken by God, the highest proportion of all the prophets. God has spoken. We need to listen. And keep in mind that the book of Malachi is the prelude to 400 years of prophetic silence. Remember back to the beginning of our gathering here this morning, just the silence. You know, we get in the car, what's the first thing we tend to do? Turn on the radio, right? We tend to fill the silence because we're uncomfortable with silence. Well, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. 400 years of prophetic silence. That's what's about to follow these words from Malachi. Finally, at the incarnation, God the Son steps into human history and John the Baptist prophetically proclaims, behold the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. As we have begun this morning, some of you might be wondering why we are even in the book of Malachi right? It's it's just one of those dust-filled books in the Old Testament we rarely read or consider. But it is part of our Bible, right? I think we do well to consider this book. All right, look look back at verse 6 here. Verse 6 of Malachi 1. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name, Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Okay, now notice the progression here. There is a progression laid out for us that the Lord is establishing. Okay, the progression here we see most clearly in verse 6. Okay, the verse moves from commendation, right? 
commendation, it moves from commendation to condemnation, and then it moves from condemnation to confrontation. And notice that the first two actions belong to God. The last action belongs to the Israelites. First, God issues a commendation. He addresses a positive relationship between a son and his father, right? A servant and his master. Honor is rightly given. This is a good thing. Then God moves from commendation to condemnation when he issues the challenge, where is my honor? And the implied answer to the question is this, it is not here. Honor and reverence, which should be given to the creator of the universe, are awkwardly absent. They are awkwardly absent in this context. And notice how the verse continues its downward progression, right? It's downward spiral. Not only are the Israelites not showing honor, not showing reverence, the Lord bluntly says that the priests have despised his name. And then finally, God presents the response from the Israelites, which comes in the form of a confrontation. It comes in the form of a challenge, right? It's a confrontation coming back. In what way have we despised your name? is that response from the Israelites, right? You can almost hear the Israelites saying, nah, we, we haven't done that. We don't do that. Uh-uh. There's the confrontation. One author has written this, quote, the people had become so calloused spiritually that they didn't even see why God was not pleased with them, end quote. In a very sad sense, if we are honest with ourselves, we do the same thing. We can become so calloused to God's word that we do not realize we are living a life that is displeasing to him. We can be quick to pass off sin as something less than what it is. Right? We use words like, well, maybe, or I might have done that. And those words allow us a way out instead of addressing the reality of our sin. Now, allow me a moment or two to address our own hearts concerning this matter. You know, have we despised the Lord's name? Uh, have we taken the Lord's name in vain? Just keep a finger here. Turn backwards to the book of Exodus. Second book there of the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament. Book of Exodus, chapter 20. You know, and Exodus 20 is most well known, quite honestly, for the Ten Commandments. Start at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, got it, got it. No worshiping idols. Perfect. All right, all right. Keep going. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. All right, all right. No making golden calves or things like that, right? You know, and then worshiping them. Got it. We're good. We're good. Two of these. Keep going. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Excellent. Right? I have not used the name of the Lord as a swear word recently. Perfect. Perfect. Right? And as, as, as we read this, we can be quick just to read the words on the page. It's black and white. Poof. We're done. We move on. You know, let's just pray and go home. 
we're all done, right? We can quickly dismiss ourselves from the consideration or contemplation that should take place here. Have we taken the Lord's name in vain? Well, let's ask this. What does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? What does it mean? The Hebrew word used here communicates the reality of nothingness or emptiness of speech. It talks about falsehood or lying. So how are we doing? Did we take the Lord's name in vain this morning? Have we taken the Lord's name in vain this morning? You know, were we intellectually and emotionally engaged as we sang and heard others sing and testify of the greatness of our Lord and of his great name? If not, may I humbly submit to you that we have taken his name in vain? We don't like thinking about that. It's a lot easier just to pass it off as, oh yeah, I'm, you know, no offense to any construction workers or farmhands, right? I mean, I just, uh, I, 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 I haven't sworn taking the Lord's name in vain this week. I'm not a construction worker, or I, I'm not a rancher. Say, like, well, why, why do we pass that off so quickly in that, right? I, and I, I'm, 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 I'm lumping myself in the same bowl here, because I grew up on the farm, right? So um, don't, don't take offense at me singling out anyone. It's just, right, we're quick to pass it off, though. It's like, yeah, the, the other people do that. Really? What, what about my heart? Let's go back to Malachi. Okay, with that assessment in mind, let's go back to Malachi. We're going to keep going here in the text. Keep in mind, not many years have passed between the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem under the direction of Nehemiah and this wicked worship of God. Keep that in mind. Now, in verses 7 through 8, God presents a different story than what the Israelites say, right? At the end of verse 6, the Israelites are challenging, right? Confrontation. In what way have we despised your name? Right, well, at the beginning of verse 7, God very pointedly offers a condemnation. Again, you offered defiled food on my altar. Right, notice that the Israelites are fulfilling a, a tidy pattern right, of response. Uh, keep reading. God says, you offered defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? So you see, again, there's the condemnation immediately followed by the confrontation coming back from the Israelites. God issues the condemnation. The Israelites respond in confrontation. God hears their challenge and repeats their words back to them. You call the table of the Lord contemptible. The Hebrew word translated contemptible could also be translated to disdain, to despise. This would not be a nice cordial conversation that two friends would be having right around a little table down at City Brew or Starbucks, a little cup of chai and a scone. No, no, that's not what's being presented here. This interaction carries a much weightier tone. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. Now, notice our, our God. God doesn't stutter. Right? He doesn't stutter. Notice the verbiage that he uses here. There's the use of the word evil. We tend to think evil, you know, we just think the, the most horrible thing possible, right? Evil, and we, that would not be who? Us, right? Because <laughs> we're really not that bad, right? No, the other things are evil, not me. Well, well, you know, this could be an abstract presentation of an inner condition, okay? Psalm, Psalm, not, excuse me, Psalm 7 or Proverbs 12 present this. But this Hebrew word most often depicts inner attitudes toward either God or man. Okay, there, there's a specificity here that expresses an inner attitude of evil ultimately directed toward the sovereign God of the universe. 
We might be tempted to gloss over this and think we do not have an attitude of evil toward God, right? It's other people, right? It's for the really bad people of the universe. Hitler, Saddam Hussein. I mean, that, that's, what, that's what God's obviously talking about here, right? I mean, we'd be quick to pass that off, and it's like, no, 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 this is being directed in a broader sense toward us. Let's turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Let's turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and let God's word expose our hearts a little bit here. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen or to hearken than the fat of rams. In verse 23, Samuel continues and he's issuing judgment from God against King Saul. Look at that. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now, in this context, we see disobedience, we see rebellion joined together as similar to divination and witchcraft. I'd say that's evil. Okay? Now, that choice to obey in the perceived little things doesn't seem so small, does it? Let's turn back to Malachi 1. Turn back to Malachi 1. You know, here in verse 8, right? Yeah. Uh, after establishing the reality of the evil of what the Israelites have done, God moves from the conceptual to the incredibly practical. And we can fall into the pattern of forgetting the reality of God because we cannot see him, right? Out of sight, out of mind. And toward the end of verse 8, God removes that excuse by making the concept tangible. God presses the Israelites by telling them to go give the half-hearted sacrifices to the governor who oversees them. Right? He says, go. Go, go, give, your, go give your sacrifice like that that you're giving to me. Go give it to your governor and see what happens. Yeah, I always feel a little bit awkward. I always have a little sense of unease when I read rhetorical questions coming from the creator of the universe. You know, would your governor be pleased with you? Well, of course not, is the only realistic answer. Right? Would your governor accept you favorably? Well, not a chance. Let's look at verse 9. But now entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. So here we see the challenge, the exhortation to pursue God's favor. But we need to keep this in mind here, right? Pursue God's favor, yes. However, to do that, to do any part of that, there needs to be genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. We're not talking sorrow here. We're talking repentance. A change of heart, a change of mind, a change of action. While living in rebellion against God, there is no hope for favor. Change must take place. Repentance must take place. Look at verse 10. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, 
says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. <laughs> this, mark, well, this verse, or mark that, this entire passage of Scripture just gives me the heebie-jeebies. Okay? Here in verse 10, God asks the Israelites if there is anyone willing to close the doors of the temple, to shut the doors so the rebellious, half-hearted sacrifices will come to an end. Is there anyone willing to lock the doors so God's greatness is not challenged? The end of verse 10 contains some of the scariest verbiage in all of Scripture. And this stuff scares me, right? I have no pleasure in you. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. My mind recalls some other words from our Lord in Matthew chapter 7. Let's turn there, just one book to the right, Matthew chapter 7. You know, isn't it funny? We, 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 we like to hold on to those, those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And yet we also need to fully realize the Lord says to other people, I have no pleasure in you. The world's apart. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then the Lord responds and says, then will I answer to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I have no pleasure in you. Tied into the concept from Malachi and for Samuel, we see God's perspective concerning self-styled worship, right? Rebellious, half-hearted worship. This rebellious, half-hearted worship of God is the same as what we would consider no worship of God. There's really no difference. They are both rebellion against the creator of the universe. Let's turn back to Malachi 1. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, verse 11 here serves as a reestablishment or a reminder of God's greatness. Yahweh is the creator of the universe. He is on his throne his name will be glorified all across the globe in every tribe, every language, every nation. And since this has not yet taken place, this is likely a reference to the millennial kingdom. Okay? We can see a, a different snapshot of this in Isaiah chapter 66. Turn back just a couple books to the left of where we are. Isaiah chapter 66 see a uh, presentation of God's glory being made known. Let's start in verse 18. Uh, 
For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pul and Lud, and draw the bow and Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules, on camels. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel into the house of the Lord, and I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens... And the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die, their fire is not quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Unlike the time that Malachi chronicled, the day is coming where God will be worshipped as his greatness demands, as greatness requires. Let's look at verse 12 back in Malachi. Verse 12. Okay, at the end of verse 11, the Lord says, For my name shall be great among the nations. And then verse 12, but you profane it. And that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food, is contemptible. Now, did the, did the Israelites literally say that the Lord's table was contemptible? Now, they, they may have done that verbally. They may have done that vocally. But they most definitely communicated that through their actions. Right? The Israelites demonstrated that the Lord's table was contemptible by refusing to offer God the best they had. Now remember how verse 8 offered the condemnation. Right? Remember how verse 8 offered the condemnation of the Israelites for offering the blind and lame sacrifices. With that thought in mind, let's keep going here. Verse 13. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? You can almost sense the rationale here behind the actions of the Israelites. Well, God requires that we offer a sacrifice. Okay, so we might as well offer something that's not of any use to me anyway. So I'll offer, you know, this lame animal or this blind animal. You know, I can't use them anyway. They're of no use to me. So I will just give God that leftover. Right? Well... In addition, right, the Israelites didn't stop there. In addition, the Israelites took this thought process to a whole new level by also choosing to offer things that had been stolen from other people. Right? This just keeps getting better and better. Yeah, no, I'm not only going to offer you something that I can't use, but, oh, yeah, here, take this. I stole it from my neighbor. Perfect. Right? I mean, how, how in the world does that honor the Lord? But what I want you to see is when we choose sin, we become dumb, right? Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Why do the kings plot a vain thing? Sin makes us stupid. 
We see that here with the Israelites. You know, we, and, and, and this is the thing for us, right? We can be quick to issue a judgment against them and say, wow, that's just dumb. I would never do that. I would never offer to God something that is stolen, right? Because I don't steal. You know, and God asks the rhetorical question at the end of verse thing, uh, 13, excuse me, should I accept this from your hand? <laughs> well, the resounding answer is no. No, I, I will not accept this from your hand. So here, let, let, let's think through this. How are we doing with weariness? Let's make this intensely practical in our corporate gathering. When songs that testify of our awesome God's glory and greatness and his provision through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, when songs like that are used in the corporate worship gathering, do we view those songs with weariness? If the songs don't feed the idols of our preferences or if the instrumentation isn't necessarily to our liking? In addition, using the biblical language here, do we sneer at it? You know, here in verse 13, notice that God is not condemning the Israelites for being absent from worship. Oh, no. No, these people were present, right? They were present for the settings of worship. They had the ritual. They had the action. They had it all down. They could check off the little box for worship on their to-do list and feel good about themselves. They could do that. But their hearts were not involved in the action. Now, Jesus condemned this type of scenario. Right? He condemned this type of scenario when he challenged the Pharisees by quoting the prophet Isaiah. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, Jesus states this, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, there's that vain word again, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Okay. Even putting a little more awkward spin on this whole scenario would be if the hearts of the Israelites were wholeheartedly involved in the action described here in Malachi chapter 1. Like, I mean, if they really knew what they were doing. It wasn't just an oversight. It wasn't just, uh, well, this is, the best, uh, this is all I'll offer type of thing. But if they fully were aware of what they were doing, and if that's the case, the decision had been made that God was not worthy. God's not worthy, so this is what I'm going to do. That could have been the scenario too. And if so, that's an incredibly scary place to be. Remember the quotes from the beginning of this message? Well, another author has written this. What we believe about God surely shapes our worship of him. What we believe about God surely shapes our worship of him. Our minds and thought processes are going to inform and direct our worship. How and what we think about God will have a direct impact on how and what we worship. Our theology will direct our doxology. And sadly, some of us fit into the descriptions of the Israelites here in Malachi chapter 1. For some of us, it is just enough that we show up at the corporate gathering. You know, don't expect me to fully engage my emotions. Don't expect me to have my intellect aware. I'm here. That's good enough. You know, we rationalize it's okay to just be here in the bodily, physical sense, but can I humbly challenge you? That's the very thing that God's addressing here with the Israelites. And he's condemning it. Uh, here, here's another thought, right? We might be tempted to think I would never bring God something that was stolen, right? I'm, I'm not going to steal and then give, give God that as, as a, an offering, right? I, I'm never going to do that. Okay, so that takes me off the hook. I don't have to worry about it. Fair enough. 
But let's think about this a little bit. Have you really brought God your best? Okay. The whole point of our lives is to bring attention to the glory and greatness of God. Anything less than that is not acceptable, right? Romans 12. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you what? That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's not that you present your arm. It's not that you present your leg. It's not that you present your head. It's you present your bodies. You present all of you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right. One could argue that by not bringing the best that God has so graciously given to us, as in the very life we are living, okay, if we are not doing that, we are robbing God. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the one who holds the molecules of our bodies together. I keep running with that thought, right? Jesus is the one who wills our hearts to keep beating. He wills our lungs to keep breathing. He wills our brains to keep thinking. Now, if we are not giving our best back to him, are we not, in fact, stealing from him? If we are honest with ourselves, this should encourage some serious self-examination. Just as the Israelites were not excited, excited about living for the Lord, we can fall into the same trap, right? We see words like weariness and sneer in the text, and we don't have to wonder much about the condition of the heart. Chapter 1 of Malachi closes with one more condemnation from God. Verse 14, But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name is to be feared among the nations, or my name feared among the nations. God's name is going to be feared among the nations. A day is coming when the creator of the universe will judge. Malachi 3.2 states this. Who can endure the day of his coming? Well, the implication is no one. Okay? Who can stand when he appears? Again, no one. Right? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. As we're winding down here this morning, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We'll start in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There was, no, there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works, and by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Those are sobering words. They should encourage us to pause, to take assessment of our lives. But here's, here's the wonderful thing, right? You know, just, just when things sing, seem hopeless, there's always hope because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross in his empty tomb, right? These words here in Revelation 20 don't need to define us. Look ahead, chapter 21. We see the hope for all those who have surrendered to the Lord. 
Chapter 21, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There's that bride word again. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Right? It's the time of no more. I just got to tell you, my heart longs for that day. I long for that day. Verse 5 says, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Right, for these words are true and faithful. And he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. What a tremendous promise. What an amazing hope. What a glorious reality for those who have surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we see in verse 8 an admonition or a condemnation. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So again, we see the admonition toward those who refuse to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So I built just a little bit of time here in this, this morning as we close. Just go ahead and close your notes, close your Bibles, and just bow your heads. I want to give just a moment for self-reflection here. How, how are we doing? How, personalize this. How are you doing? Ask yourself, how am I doing? How am I relating to the creator, the God of the universe? Here's the challenge. Are, are we worshiping God the way we want? Are we attempting to worship a God that we have created in our own minds? Are we stealing glory from the one who owns all things? the God of the universe. Ultimately, it boils down to this. What are we doing with the Lord Jesus Christ? Father God, this morning we've, we've seen a stark presentation from your word. And there's a side of this, Lord, which is incredibly uh, sobering, frightening. 
as well it should be. We're Americans. We're, we're in the Western Hemisphere. We like this thought of calling our own shots. And Lord, we, we know what we like. Sadly, we, uh, we can tend to make those things so big that we replace you. Here's the great thing. You as the creator, the God, the sovereign of the universe, you are not going to willingly step aside from your throne so that we can put you know, a, a muddy little you know, carved idol up there on the throne. You're not going to tolerate that. Yet, Father, we, it's easy for us to look at the Israelites and say, oh yeah, they did this. Well, Father, may our hearts be convicted. Challenge us, Lord, to contemplate what have we done with the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Father, it's just like your, your words through the prophet Isaiah, right? We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or a filthy rag. We fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. So, Father, work in our hearts. May your spirit convict of sin. May we repent and run to you. May you be glorified through us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
redemption that was purchased through the blessed cross that you bore for me. You bore for me. I am guilty but pardoned. By grace I've been set free. I am ransomed through the blood you shed for me. I was dead in my transgressions, but life you brought to me. I am reconciled through mercy. To the cross I cling. To the cross I cling. Thank you. 